Hello, everyone, and welcome again to another episode of The Last Defense. This is our third podcast, so we're growing. Hooray! Um, what we'd like to talk about today is austerity, the dreaded word that's sweeping the world, every single nation around the planet, with the exception of a few are experiencing austerity, especially in the West. We are noticing that along with these financial austerity measures that are being placed around the world by these central banks, central banks such as the Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank, along with the IMF and the World Bank, we're noticing that there is a specific amount of backlash that has accrued because a lot of these countries that are underneath these austerity measures, um, they're not really happy about having a lot of these fiscal um, cuts and setbacks placed upon them. So what we need to do first, we need to really understand what's happening in order to give you a clear picture of what's going on in the European Union as well as the United States. We need to take a few specific models and these different models will help us to understand how we can actually beat financial austerity and impose better policies, better solutions, I would even say, that would give us a clear insight as to how to beat these debt-ridden situations. So what I'd like to do is give the mic over to you, Mr. Mike, and let you go ahead and hammer it out for, for all of our listeners so we can explain exactly what's going on. We need to pretty much define the problem in order for us to really find the solution. And the problem is not necessarily what we'd like to believe or what we what we think. So, anyways, go ahead and take it. Yep, this is Michael Belowski here, and I'm gonna, today I'm going to talk about the worldwide economic crisis. Like, um, it's, it's going on everywhere. It happens to be focused on Europe at the moment. But it's sort of like a domino effect. It's every several months or so, it's a different nation. About a year or so ago, it was Iceland, um, Ireland, now Greece, and now you're hearing about Spain. You know, it's, it's a domino effect. But I want to talk first about Iceland because this is an exception to the pattern. Iceland beat the IMF and the World Bank. In fact, they arrested bankers. And it's really amazing and an exception to the norm, what happened over there. So I'm going to talk about that. But first, I want to briefly revisit the 2002 IMF World Bank document. I talked about this in our previous podcast. I think I read a quote from Greg Pallas, who worked at the BBC. He obtained the documents. And I'm going to summarize this quote again. I'm not going to read it again, but I'm going to summarize it so... Basically, he said he obtained these documents, and nations are required to sign an agreement with the IMF and World Bank. And part of this agreement is that they would sign on to all this banker debt, this faulty um, derivatives debt. And we're going to go back to that word derivatives later. But, and part of the deal was to sell off key, asset, key assets of the nation, such as infrastructure, roads, uh, buildings, um, water structures, anything of value in the nation could be sold for pennies on the dollar. So kind of ridiculous. And this kind of thing is going on all the time. They call it the IMF crisis. And there's examples throughout history. Um, I talked about Argentina in last week's podcast. That was one of them. But today I'm going to focus on Iceland and a little bit on Greece. So Iceland the model for success, President Grimson, I don't know if he's still the president, but at the time he said, allow the banks to fail. Think about that. Allow the banks to fail. Remember, too big to fail? It was like the slogan on the mainstream media for um, the U.S. during that unpopular banker bailout, in like, I think it was 2008. And they said, too big to fail. President Grimson said, allow the banks to fail. He said, essentially, and this is 
popular movements such as the Occupy Wall Street and, you know, around the world, other Occupy movements. Um, I just want to take a brief quote from the trends forecaster, Max Kaiser. He's a journalist that we'll be referencing a lot. I think we have a post up on the website from him just this week. He said there's a global, this is my paraphrasing, there's a global insurrection against the big banks. And again, back to Occupy Wall Street, you see that it, it happened here in Seoul. It started in New York. That's the opposite side of the world right there. And, you know, everywhere in between, there was big movements against each nation's central bank. So the dailyoccupation.org reports that Iceland, well, first they voted out a lot of their politicians, obviously, if you're letting bankers take over your country, you're going to get voted out. That's a given. And then they had a $2 billion lawsuit against, uh, against their bankers that were ruining the nation for making, quote, unquote, inappropriate loans. Well, again, they're talking about derivatives. Now, I'm going to get into the definition of derivatives, but I'm going to start with a story. I found this on the Internet. I just, post, I just typed into Google derivatives 101 just to see what would pop up. And this funny story popped up. Unfortunately, I can't attribute an author to it. I'm not going to read the whole thing. This is my paraphrasing the whole thing. Um, it's about a lady in Detroit, and she owns a bar. And her most popular customers are unemployed alcoholics. Obviously, unemployed people can't buy a lot of drinks. So she came up with this clever scheme. Let's let them use IOUs to buy their drinks. They can pay later. So... Naturally, she can raise prices as much as she wants. Nobody's going to notice they're not paying initially, at least they're not paying. And this banker sees a great opportunity. He keeps letting her borrow more money to run this operation. And then he starts trading the IOUs on the stock market. He starts trading the debts, and he actually names them. This is not a true story, by the way, as far as I know. And I'm pretty sure it's made up. Puke bonds, drink bonds, etc., being traded as... Uh, viable assets on the stock market when, in fact, they're the debts of unemployed alcoholics. So, obviously, they're not very valuable. <laughs> um, so, eventually, the bank demands the debts from these IOUs of unemployed alcoholics, and the uh, bar has to declare bankruptcy. They, you know, they don't have any money. The drunk alcoholics aren't going to pay. The bonds, the drunk, bo the puke bonds and drink bonds drop 90% overnight. The bank has to freeze all their credit because they don't have any liquidity. They can't give anybody anyone more money. The suppliers who had invested, they also invested in the puke bonds. They, they invested a pension funds and all kinds of um, money into those. So they're all losing out. And in the end, at the end of the story, the bank uses their influence over presumably politicians and probably some media to push the whole too big to fail theme on the people, you know, oh, we've got to save these banks. They, you know, they obviously made a mistake investing in uh, unemployed alcoholics. And so they get a huge bailout from middle class, hardworking, tax paying people. They, they got to raise taxes, obviously, to fund the bailout. And none of these people ever had a drink at at this bar, they never invested, they didn't make any money off this huge scheme. So the, the gist of the story is um, they, made they made money out of nothing. They made, they made money out of the IOUs of unemployed drunk alcoholics, and eventually the, hard, the real hardworking taxpayer people had to pay for the whole thing. So that's kind of an example of derivatives. Um, it's kind of a funny story kind of gives you the gist of it. It's, it's essentially paper based on paper. It's nothing. It's like if you wrote on a dirty napkin, this is $10 and started spending it like $10. It's not $10. Um, but that's how derivatives tend to work. So let me get back to my notes here. Okay, so we got different kinds of derivatives. We got credit default swaps, mortgage-backed securities. Derivatives are essentially promises or options to buy, sell, or trade an asset in the future. That, that's, a very, that's a very brief definition. If we had an economist on, hopefully in the future, 
we can narrow that down a little bit more. But it's essentially gambling. That's a good way to think about it. Um, they're, they're essentially gambling. And they were illegal for half of the 20th century, from about the 1930s to 1980s. I think President Reagan probably was the one that um, deregulated them. But the, the things didn't get bad until 1999 when the Clinton, the Clinton administration ended the Glass-Steagall Act. The Glass-Steagall Act, named after the uh, politicians that um, did the act about back in the first depression in the 1920s and 30s, the Glass-Steagall Act basically pro prohibited investment and commercial banks from being one and the same. They're supposed to be separated or else it's a conflict of interest. Now, I guess the commercial banks invest in the, um, well, I guess businesses and, and investment banks, but basically you shouldn't be able to bet on, essentially you shouldn't be able to bet on something that you control the fate of. Kind of think of like a Don King fight, you know, where, where they say he owns both fighters and obviously he, he can arrange things so that if somebody bet a lot of money on the fight, somebody, you know, can make a lot of, a lot of extra money knowing the outcome of the fight. It's kind of like that to put things in perspective. So, and another thing about these is they're not regulated. Nobody knows how many of them are out there. They're over-the-counter. Um, estimates of how many derivatives, the total value of derivatives on the world market range from $600 trillion. That's the Washington, Washington Post. That's mainstream news. If you go to alternative media, that number goes up as high as $2 quadrillion. That's with a Q. That's, that's not a T, that's with a Q. I don't know how many zeros that are. It's a pretty big number. It's essentially a black hole. Uh, it doesn't matter. 600 trillion, two, four, two, four, eight quadrillion. It, it's just an economic black hole that just sucks everything up, and there's no stopping it until you either outlaw them or tax them. That's in a solution phase. Um, there's two things you can do about derivatives. You can tax them, any amount of tax, even 1%, can be very effective because it's not so much the quality but the quantity of derivatives that makes them so devastating. They're done with flash trading. Flash trading, if you don't know, is kind of like computerized uh, programs that are preset to uh, trade on the stock market, but it's not like somebody sitting there at the computer doing it. It's just a program that keeps doing trade, 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 trade. You know, every second they're doing tons and tons of trades. Uh, Max Kaiser talks about this. I think he used to write one of these programs or use one of these programs. That's why I know so much about derivatives and economic issues. So anyway, you have, let's see, the results of derivatives. You have the 2008 Lehman Brothers crash. That bank went under. And then shortly after that, you had the bailout, which was basically uh, putting the, the floodgates up because the Lehman Brothers going down, if they didn't do that bailout, um, you know, most of these banks probably went down, and they should have as, you know, getting back to Iceland. I think I kind of skipped over this part. They arrested bankers in Iceland. Um, yeah, and, and a lot of them had to flee the country. So, again, that was from the dailyoccupation.org. Yeah, people, people went to jail, and that's a sharp contrast to what happened in 2008 in the U.S., in the U.S., we had the bailout, and obviously um, that probably led to the QE1 and QE2 eventually, you know, those big influxes of cash that causes inflation. Um, yeah, so there's no accountability. Nobody knows how many of these things there are. I have here in my notes, the 1997 Asian IMF, IMF crisis was an example of derivatives. Argentina, Iceland, Greece. And I just want to finish up, finish up real quick with a few comments about Greece. Um, Greece is having elections on June 17th, and these are worth paying attention to. Basically, the tide in Greece seems to be, and this is good news for all the depressing topics we talk about on here. Uh, this is good news. It seems like, according to a report on the Webster Tarpley Show, another economist, uh, Greece is tending to say no to austerity. They are saying no to the banks. They want to kick out and or arrest the bankers. And austerity is essentially 
um, the depriving basic needs, for example, well, well uh, quality of living, basic needs, rising prices of food, cutting off things like pension funds, food stamps, uh, Medicaid, Medicare, things that people rely on, whether you agree with these programs or not, and I have mixed feelings about a lot of them myself, but if people are relying on them to live, if it's a matter of life and death, that's a, that's a big deal. That's, that's what austerity is, is when instead of making the bankers pay, they make you pay. And f for some people, the difference between the bankers paying or the people paying is literally a matter of life and death. And as I get into austerity, I guess I should pass it back to Hanul Navi, because you're going to talk about austerity, right? Yeah, yeah. When we talk about austerity, now we have to find out who's generating the debt. And you gave a great explanation as to who's generating it. It's not mm -hmm. the people, per se. It is the institutions. They are the, the private banks. The central banks are complicit with the private banks. And with the two of them working together, it just seems like they create this endless system and cycle of debt. Now, in a... In the past, we used to have a system of saving and of, and of um, working hard towards a goal. And I even see that you know, here in the East where a lot of people will save their money before they decide to buy, um, say, for instance, an apartment or a house. Um, a lot of Eastern countries are very <clears throat> um, debt-averse. And oftentimes, they don't like to open up systems of credit. And there are even cases where even in South Korea, that they had major, major crises happen when they started to introduce things like credit cards or whatnot that people didn't know how to use responsibly or that people um, didn't know how they operated. And then when they realized they had a, a ton of debt later on, there were lots of suicides that happened here. Um, so that's just one example of how it can affect people domestically. But when we go to the institutions, uh, one of the main things I wanted to talk about with the EU is that although they're using this austerity to maintain and control power over um, other EU members, it's actually having a, in a, a reverse effect. Instead of keeping people more closely tight-knit in the European Union, it's actually making rebellion flourish within this economic bloc. Now, going back and looking at some of the things related to the European Union, it all started with, um, I think it was the coal and steel company with Great Britain. They were trying to, you know, make tariffs a little easier and shipping them out to other EU members to try to create some financial codependency. But they later on began to start working with passports with the Schengen Agreement, and then this later began to form a particular economic bloc, and this created the euro, and then everything started to get the ball rolling. Unfortunately, we see that there are two main key players in the European Union, and those two players are, um, they are France and Germany. And we used to see this major alliance with uh, Nicolas Car uh, Sarkozy and uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel, and they really were running the show with a lot of these other countries in the backdrop. And as time went by, many new play key players started to come into the, the stage, the global stage, and it's going to be a little bit more difficult to maintain and to manage this austerity policy underneath the European Central, break, uh, Central Bank, which is located in Germany. Um, I think Angela Merkel is going to have a very difficult time, you know, keeping the reins on and trying to push her anti—I mean, her, trying to push her austerity agenda, which is known as the fiscal pact, and um, it's creating a lot of backlash from other EU members, especially ones that have different economies or that are not able to, you know, keep the austerity and debt ball rolling. It's really difficult for people to you know, deal with austerity because what it does is it doesn't stimulate the economy. It actually brings the economy to a grinding halt. 
and this is the issue that we're seeing here. Now, with a lot of these different EU members, they are, um, again, they're going diametrically opposed to what the EU was supposed to do initially. Um, it was supposed to bring countries together and create a system of financial codependency which allowed people to work together as as opposed to, you know, fighting wars. We've seen that um, what we know now as the European Union was a, a group of European states and nations that have experienced two world wars. And in order to stave off this desire to have any more wars, they wanted to try to create, you know, economic unity. Um, the only problem is it's actually giving more of a rise to the things they didn't want in the first place, which are actually more neo-fascist groups and disunity and, you know, the rise of, you know, and breakaway of the European Union. And one of the things that I wanted to note, and specifically note, was that with all of this talk of austerity and all of this talk about responsible planning and responsible use of money, these European central banks, as well as these private banks, are the ones generating the debt. It's not the people, per se. What they do is they kind of, they have this plan, like, they act like pushers. And they say, hey, you know, you want to try this? This is the latest product. And then when they start pushing the weight around and they start to sell their toxic, their toxic assets, you know, through the use of derivatives, and the use of um, hedge funds and things of that nature, what it does is it essentially bankrupts the economy. The institutions use these as a means of hedging funds. But what it does aversely is it creates this black hole, this portal, this neither world region where everyone's wealth and everyone's money and financial backing, you know, goes out the window. And these debts in the form of financial derivatives, as you said, they were in the trillions. It is mathematically impossible to pay these things off. And this is what I want people to understand. It, you cannot pay them off. Even by inducing taxes, it's going to be really impossible. And the fact of the matter is that um, a lot of these nations are realizing this and they realize that they're owing and they're paying back money to groups of um, people who did insider trading, who, you know, used people's money, private and public, to trade on the market and to um, use their money to create, you know, to bet, to gamble using these derivatives. And we've seen instances like with J.P. Morgan, we've seen instances with... Um, you know, MF Global, that was the one of the largest scandals that have come out uh, in recent times, where you have, you know, um, John Corzine, you know, CEO of MF Global, using insider trading and people's money to go ahead and push his own agendas and to try to gamble on the markets. And when he realized he lost all of it, he took $1.8 billion from everyone else and then said he couldn't find the money. And as we know, that every transaction that goes into a major corporation or into a major banking system, you can monitor how many pens you spend. I mean, how, how much money you spend on pens. You can monitor how much money you spend on food, bag lunches, anything. So why can't they find $1.8 billion? Oh, that's right, because it's, it's, the, um, it's the CEO. Not only did he... Um, steal the money, but he wired a lot of it to J.P. Morgan, who also, Jamie Dimon, doesn't want to tell what happened to the money anyway. So, I digress. Anyways, we're going to move into this. Um, we're going to go ahead and play a short clip from the Kaiser Report, uh, episode 92, and this kind of gives a picture as to what's going on, and the fact that a lot of these um, different... Um, terrorist tactics that these bankers are using is not the responsibility of the people, it's the responsibility of the banks, and they should go, they should fall, not us. 
So I'm going to go ahead and roll this. Well, to go further on these uh, European austerity measures, the debt crisis and the bondholders who refuse to uh, go away, Ireland, Greece, debt woes, reverse sovereign debt swaps rally. So swaps on Ireland soared to 474 basis points from 428 as recently as October 22nd, as the government became locked in a standoff with Anglo-Irish bank note holders over who should bear the cost of rescuing the nationalized lender. Now, remember, this isn't a lender that was lending to the citizens of Ireland. It was a lender who was lending to these big corporations. Uh, bondholders include Goldman Sachs, whose chairman in Europe is Peter Sutherland, the former attorney general of Ireland, who has been visiting Brian Lenehan, the finance minister of Ireland. So these bondholders are able to go directly to the government and say, you know, basically, we don't know what they're saying behind closed doors, really. Now, if only Bobby Sands had opened a bank, <laughs> you know, the, the IRA would have been a lot more successful. Like Anglo-Irish Bank, they would have been more successful shaking down these governments had they opened a bank. So these Irish banking terrorists, there is a pot of gold at the end of their rainbow. <laughs> but everyone else in Ireland's getting beat upside the head with a shillelagh stick of debt. What are these austerity programs that they're imposing on these poor Irish people for what? So who, who is the guy who runs this bank? Do we have well, some names here? Who is Sean Fitzpatrick? I know he's involved in one of these, one of these financial Irish terrorist schemes. How come he's not in the maze, right next to the, to the cell where Bobby Sands sat? How come these bankers from Ireland are not in the maze, suffering through uh, untoward punishment from the state for being financial terrorists, or shillelagh stick-wielding, nightmarish little green goblins? Why? Well, the article goes on and says that Alan Dukes, the chairman of the bank, mm. said he wouldn't negotiate with creditors who pledged to block a proposed debt exchange that will impose almost $2 billion. Yeah, what's his leverage? What, 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 what do you mean he won't, he won't negotiate? What do you mean? I'm not negotiating. I'm going to blow up your economy. <laughs> yeah, that's a good... He's a suicide banker. How come they're not in jail? How come they're not being in... The, they're not in the maze. Well, the reality is, Max, as we've been talking about for the previous few minutes, is that this guy's leverage is he has a fake judge and a fake sheriff who has held up the population, who has convinced the population of Ireland that they're the ones that have to hand over their assets to pay off these other guys' debts. He has a fake sheriff right. on his side. That's right. They have no authority. His sheriff has no authority whatsoever to impose these austerity measures. That's so why are the Irish people submitting to a fake authority? Question authority. QA, question authority. Forget about QE, quantitative easing. Think about QA, question authority. They've got no authority to impose austerity measures on you Irish people. Don't you understand that? It's back to the potatoes for you, my friends. Okay, coming right back. Uh, I just want to go over briefly some of the key players that are in this um, anti-austerity movement. And um, it's important to know how it's affecting the European Union and what unity will be left after these, after these different um, nations start to push their anti-austerity um, ideals and ideologies. So we're looking at, <clears throat> first off, Greece. Greece is very interesting because this, this is pretty much where it started in the European Union. And um, in an article, Anti-Austerity Movements Gaining Momentum Across Europe by Kate Connolly and Angelique uh, Chrysophis in The Guardian. It was featured April 27, 2012. They talk about the different key players, the ones that are actually breaking away from the European Union and forming their own coalitions. Now that it's election time, we need to start seeing how these new elections are going to affect the policies and who's going to go along with Miss Merkel and who's not going to go along and play by the ECB's rules or by the fiscal pact. Anyways, First up, we have Greece, and in this they mention um, there is a new key player. Uh, he is a neo-fascist named uh, Chrissy Av uh, Avgi, I guess that's how you pronounce it. And they say, like the band of satellite communist groups also opposing the harsh terms of austerity in return for aid, uh, he has seen their fortunes rise as a memorandum fury has grown. Shamelessly xenophobic, uh, Chrissy 
has become increasingly popular among those hit by steep pay and pension cuts and enraged by illegal immigration, with polls showing the party easily crossing the 3% threshold to enter parliament. Independent Greeks, which is another unabashedly populist group set up in February by a former New Democracy um, Prime Minister, I think this is what this is, also opposed to the punitive terms of the bailouts, has similarly seen its popularity soar amongst the populace, grappling with deepening poverty and record levels of unemployment. So, what this means is that, especially in Greece, where they were hit the hardest, a lot of new fascist groups are going to rise out of this. Oh, where did we see this happen last time? Oh yeah, Germany, after the fall of the Weimar Republic, when people were using wheelbarrows of money to buy loaves of bread, they would actually um, give rise to new fascist groups, and that's exactly how we got the, you know, the Nazi uh, Socialist Party. And um, one of my Berliner friends told me an interesting joke. I guess I could share this with you. A guy walks in, he has a wheelbarrow of money, and he goes to pay for a beer. And he goes to the bartender, he says, yeah, bartender, I'd like to have one beer. And then after that, he orders another one immediately, without even finishing the first one. And the bartender looks at him, he's like, oh, well, why are you ordering another one? You haven't finished your first beer yet. And the German says, well, you know, with the rising inflation, you know, who knows how much more money I'll need for the second beer. So the joke is that the inflation occurred so f quickly that, it, you know, he'd have to go ahead and order his first beer now before the inflation gets higher. So anyways, moving back into what we were talking about, um, this is going to really affect the European Union. It's actually going to create a European disunion. I think that um, these new neo-fascist groups may cause a lot of trouble, especially for the Merkel Fiscal Pact. And um, we can move into the next group, France. Now, recently, Hollande, uh, Mr. Francois Hollande, has actually won the election, beating out the incumbent, Nicolas Sarkozy. And in an article, What Hollande's Anti-Austerity Rhetoric Means, by Eleanor Beardsley, uh, featured in NPR on May 8, 2012. Uh, they mentioned that Hollande has pledged to balance the French budget by 2017. He'll do that partly by taxing the very rich at rates of 75%, an idea that proved wildly popular amongst the majority of his supporters. But really to create jobs, says analyst, Hollande has to take on serious labor market reforms which is something that he's never talked about. So basically, this guy Hollande, he's a socialist leader. Uh, he recently won the elections after beating Nicolas Sarkozy, and he wants to, uh, he wants to take an anti-austerity stance. But the problem with this is he needs to address specific things and specific problems of the people in order to really create the change that is necessary. Now, Americans saw someone similar to that, Barack Obama, after the, you know, the complete quagmire of the Bush administration. We looked towards people that would um, actually get us out of the debt that we had created for, from going to the Afghanistan and the Iraq wars. And this person, Halan, kind of reminds me of someone like Barack Obama. He poses a lot of change, but no one's really seen what he's done yet so we need to actually find out what he's gonna do and what his record will show as he begins to take his place in office and begin instilling new instilling new um, laws and referendums and um, making changes to the fiscal policy the policies of France um, another article centrist in disguise how anti-austerity can France Hollande be by Oliver Tree. It was featured in the IB Times on May 7, 2010. They noted that actually um, he has a few of these policies he wants to put into place, but you know we're going to see how he can um, you know, get those off the ground first so that we can make sure that he's actually sticking to his word. This is a big problem amongst a lot of politicians, sticking to their word. Uh, they mentioned in a direct attack on his predecessor's deeply unpopular 2010 pension reforms, the 
predecessor being Nicolas Sarkozy. He has also pledged, at least for some workers, to roll back the retirement age from 62 to 60. And later on, they mention, in a, but in a nod towards fiscal responsibility, he has also promised a 100 billion euro savings plan and a balanced budget by 2017. We mentioned that earlier. A feat not achieved in France for the past 30 years. So, big steps for Mr. Hollande. Hopefully, he can fill those shoes from past um, leaders and get France back on the right track. Start serving the people instead of serving his own pockets and interests like Mr. Sarkozy. Another key player I want to mention and talk about is Ireland. These guys are very, very interesting because for some reason, you know, Ireland, they have basically given a big middle finger to the European Union and told everyone that we're not paying. And in order to really, you know, extrapolate off of that, I'd like to go to a few quotes. Um, one article, I mean, in the same article, I think they were saying, um, Ireland faces a referendum on the EU fiscal pact on May 31st, with opinion polls showing only a slim majority in favor of a yes vote. Yes being um, a referendum about the fiscal pact and uh, Merkel's um, plan for European conquest, if you want to put it that way. Foreign Minister Eamon Gilmore rejected the notion that a Hollande victory in France would make it harder to make the case for a yes vote. Sinn Féin and other opponents of the treaty have already claimed Hollande's program is in direct opposition to the austerity policies the Irish government wants voters to endorse at the end of next month. So these austerity policies the Irish government wants to, you know, address, those are the ones that kind of back um, the fiscal pact. And hopefully Hollande, if, they works, if he works together with Ireland, he can kind of... Um, you know, create some momentum that will help other European Union countries that are facing these austerity plans to kind of rebel and go against what's happening within the European Union. Um, in an article uh, featured in Bloomberg magazine, there was um, an author, Dara uh, Doyle, and in the article it titled, Ireland's Treaty Opponents Gain Anti-Austerity Ammunition, featured on May 9th, 2012, they said a no vote by Ireland, which is pushed through every measure asked of it since 2010 rescue, would deal a further blow to a German-led bloc in Europe that says budget cuts are essential to tackle the roots, the root causes of the two-and-a-half-year uh, crises. Sorry. Um, they later go to mention the people of France, the people of Greece are against the policies of austerity, and it is now a moment for Ireland to add our voice to that. This was a quote from Mary Lou MacDonald, deputy leader of Sinn Féin. So what they're trying to say with this new group, Sinn Féin, well, not necessarily new, but you know, they're gaining momentum and traction in the elections and the popular vote, as well as perception. They want to go against the austerity, and they're tired of paying back these debts that are not theirs. And essentially what's happened in the European Union is a lot of these countries with weaker economies have been played off of, you know, and they're getting a lot of the blame, you know, some of the ones like Greece, which are the olives, you know, a member of the olive states, as well as, as, well as um, countries like Italy and um, it just seems like it's making it very difficult for these people to have any kind of autonomy when it's not even their debt to begin with. Um, some of the evidence that shows this is that Ireland's government has already introduced 24 billion euros of budget cuts since the economy went into a recession in 2008. And there are signs that voters are growing weary of austerity. So it's not really stimulating the economy or getting them back on the right track to even impose this austerity onto their, their governments. Um, one person particularly says, we have a unique opportunity to deal another strong blow to the austerity agenda that works only for the bondholders and the rich. This was Paul Murphy, and he's a social member of the European Parliament who is campaigning against the treaty. He says further that we can add to the momentum against this treaty and potentially sink it. So Ireland is definitely anti-austerity. 
and they're working really hard to go against the policies that are being, you know, superimposed into their government and superimposed into their economy. Now, uh, let's move on. I want to wrap it up by talking about Italy. And uh, we have a guy here, Giuseppe Beppe Grillo. Uh, Grillo uh, God, it's hard to pronounce. He is a, um, he's a new proponent in Italy. And he's kind of got like this uh, comical attitude. He's, he's pretty much seen as the comedian politic of Italy. And he's created this thing called the Five Star Movement. And it was founded less than three years ago. And it seems to be having a pretty big following. It says here it claims 200,000 enrolled members. And what they're trying to advocate in Italy is a form of direct democracy that would be given, that would actually give the entire public the role of government and guidance normally attributed to the few. So Italy is a very proud nation, has a long history. And the fact of the matter is, a lot of these people do not want these, um, these, as you know, Max Kaiser would say, zombie bankers taking over their government and ruining their autonomy. So direct democracy movements are becoming more popular in, in um, the EU. So to wrap this up, you know, I hope that these new players in the governments of the European Union can do something about the austerity movement, the fiscal pot. And I hope that Germany, along with its own people, especially within the Pirate Party, they can kind of, um, you know, you know, dissuade Germany from, you know, doing what we would say like a, an economic takeover of the European Union. Because Germany already has kind of a bad reputation when it comes to past and previous wars. And now that this economic war has been waged, uh, hopefully, you know, before anything escalates into something really bloody or really um, detrimental to the growth and the opportunities of all European people, that um, they can turn this thing around. Hopefully, these new players can do that, or the inverse can happen, which is the situation we don't want to see, which is another bloody breakaway and um, the rise of fascism all across the board. So we'll see what happens. So you stay tuned into that. So do you have any other uh, closing arguments, or closing comments before we um, wrap this up, Mike? Oh, sure. Uh, let's see. I, I wanted to back up something you said. You were saying how the austerity doesn't seem to be working, and that's why over in Ireland they're not going to do austerity. Uh, actually, it's even worse than that. Austerity tends to make the situation worse, and you talked about Weimar Germany earlier with the story about the guy ordering beers as fast as he can to fight the inflation, to beat the inflation. Uh, in Weimar Germany, I think his name was Bruning, President Bruning. He was the guy before Hitler, or one of the guys right before Hitler came along, and he was basically Mr. Austerity. He was uh, cutting everybody's standard of living in an effort to save the economy, and everything got worse. Um, the debts got bigger, you know, so you're definitely, we're right about that. Things don't just not get better. They actually, you know, tend to get worse. And we saw this in California, too, with some policies by Arnold Schwarzenegger. But um, another the, the thing, <laughs> I, I, one thing I forgot when, in my, when I was talking, uh, um, Webster Tarpley, journalist, you know, he was saying, Credit default swaps, the type of derivatives, are intentionally, and keyword being intentionally, being used to shift the depression from the U.S. dollar to the euro. And there were meetings about this, which he talks about in his radio program at tarpley.net. You can find, he talks about them in this week's show. I think they were in New York City. A bunch of elites had a few these meetings back a few years ago. Unfortunately, I don't have the names off the top of my head, but you can listen to his show. And he talks about how they want to sh they want to use these credit default swaps, which are like a it's like buying. Imagine if you were buying uh, insurance in somebody else's house, and then you go burn it. Then you go hire the mafia to go burn it down. Mm -hmm. you, you saw this in uh, the movie Goodfellas. Actually, they did exactly that. <laughs> they you know <laughs> they sold they they bought they bought took over the restaurant and they just started selling everything at half price. 
because it was all for profit because they were getting ready to burn it down and then they burned it down right. they collected that insurance money so it's it's all in the movie Goodfellas <laughs> but uh you know they wanted they want Europe to go first for some reason I couldn't tell you why um but trust me this is going to come back to the US the United States is definitely the worst the worst is yet to come 2008 was probably a preview and one more thing I, I also forgot to say this um, Alex Jones, radio host, he is covering this year's Bilderberg Conference. I think he's doing it as we speak oh, yeah, that's at their right. meeting in the U.S. And his inside sources said, uh, to paraphrase Alex, his people on the inside said they're very upset. Oh, by the way, the Bilderberg Conference, like in the interest of time, we can't really explain it. They're, they're basically uh, CEOs, uh, bankers, politicians – they meet every year, sometimes in Europe, sometimes U.S., and they probably smoke cigars in dark rooms and talk about how to, how to rob us, how to take all our money. And the word is that they're very upset because um, Hanno mentioned Ireland. I talked about Iceland and Greece. There is an awakening. Um, it, again, Max Kaiser was talking about the worldwide global insurrection against the bankers. They're very upset. And when the Bilderbergers are upset, that's, that's a good thing. We want them to be upset. If they're happy, that's not good. But they're upset, so we're doing all right. And, uh, yeah, I guess that's about it. And one more thing, uh, you know, derivatives, derivatives, derivatives. Uh, that, that's the elephant in the room. If anybody's talking about economics, um, they call it the D word in mainstream news because they won't say it. That is probably what's driving most of the trouble that's been going on since 2008. And one more thing, I wanted to ask you, Hanul, um, what do you think? Like Alex Jones says that this is all by design. And going back to that 2002 document, like a lot of people think, oh, they're just, they're just greedy, they're just incompetent. I think maybe it's more than that. It might be by design. What do you think? Like are they doing this on purpose or is it just – uh, incompetence or, or some greed. Uh, well, you have a house of madmen basically who've decided yeah. to use um, fiscal policy as a means of controlling governments. And as things get more and more complicated in the field of politics, it becomes a little bit more nebulous as to who's really pulling the strings. In my personal opinion, I say if you want to take over a country, you do it slowly where people can't see you. Where it's not out in the open and people can't really understand it through all the text, you know, the technical uh, jargon. Uh, sure, why not? Yeah, I would say that um, banks are essentially trying to run the show. They're trying to get people to believe psychologically that, for some odd reason, this is all of their debt. This is all their fault. Bad person. This is like this massive psychic vampire that tells people to you know, to ascribe to the things that aren't theirs to take on this debt. And, you know, after that, have people fooled into believing that they have to pay it back. When, in fact, we're paying back banks that are private. We're paying back Federal Reserves, especially in the United States, that more than 80% of its shareholders come from foreign countries. And... Mm -hmm. You know, yes, if you want power, sure, take over a country by making them sign on to some, you know, to some debt that's not even theirs. And if you can psychologically convince someone, of, you know, to do that, then, yeah, you've got it in the bag. I would say yes. Banks finance wars. They finance the destruction of third world countries all the time. So now what makes uh, any of these second and first world countries any different? They're just testing it on third world countries, and they're going to move it eventually over to our, you know, to our own nations. Mm. So I say they've got it in the bag. Uh, speaking of which, I wanted to bring up one other quote from an article, A Developing World of Debt, which was featured in The Guardian. Um, this was featured around, okay, it doesn't have a date. Anyways, moving right along. Uh, oh, yeah. May 18, 2012. In it, it talks about how debt is developing across the world, especially the developing and third world. 
Uh, in the article, it mentions a major chunk of the debt owed by 32 countries, mostly in sub-Saharan Africa, was eliminated by the heavily indebted poor countries initiative of the World Bank and IMF, which was reinforced by the G8's 2005 multilateral debt relief initiative. But many poor countries in Asia and Latin America, for example, Jamaica and El Salvador, did not have debts written off because their income per capita was too high to meet the IMF and World Bank criteria. Others, such as Bangladesh, did not qualify for cancellation because their debts were seen as sustainable. So, hmm, do bankers really control the world? Well, they are setting policies, such as these, to see who qualifies to get written off, you know, to have their debts written off. And unfortunately, being a second and third, I mean, being a second and first world country, our GDP is too high to have, you know, the almighty gods of the IMF and the World Bank to tell us, uh, you have been pardoned. So they can pardon Corzine for stealing $1.8 billion of our money, but they can't pardon certain countries from debt that's not theirs. Anyways, yes, I hope that answers your question. Oh, sure, yeah. <laughs> I think it's a combination. They um, they they have they are trying to control the situation, but it's they they don't control everything. They there are too many variables. Frankly, I, I'm I don't know. Maybe I'm naive, but I think that people are waking up, and I hope that the last defense 2012 it becomes a big part of that. Yes, me too. Uh, me too. And uh, it's wonderful seeing that we're actually getting these ideas. Um, into cogent sentences that we can deliver across the world to whoever listens to us. Anyways, speaking of which, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up. Uh, thank you, Mike Belowski, so much for mm -hmm. everything that you've contributed and everything that you're doing. I uh, really appreciate it. Yeah, you too. Thanks for all the hard work. Uh, no problem, no problem. Anyways, we're going to sign off. Thanks for listening again to The Last Defense in Transmission. La pauvreté laisse certains impassibles Pendant que d'autres restent incorruptibles C'est indescriptible Le pouvoir du love, tout est possible Dans le capitalisme, sauf si ton compte est risible Alors tu deviens invisible, submersible Aux yeux de ceux qui te pensaient infaillibles La loi